Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew 18, 5 through 10. I have six children. Man, I love my kids. You love your kids? You must. You keep having them, right? I want my kids to succeed in every area of life, don't you? I especially want them to grow in Christ-likeness, conforming their minds and their will to the Lord's. My children's growth and success and flourishing is at least as important to me as my own is. At least. That being the case, it's difficult to overstate the appreciation uh, I have toward those people who have taken the time to invest in and love my children. Don't you love people that love your kids? Any healthy parent can relate to that sentiment. The, the Bible refers to it as natural affection. But there's another side to this natural affection as well. Just as much as I passionately desire my children's good, and just as much as I'm grateful and affectionate toward those who love them, I'm violently protective of my children. Indeed, I have a disdain and a resentment toward anyone who despises my kids. He's going to, you know, uh, the disdain rivals the gratitude and affection that I have toward those that love them, I would say. And if some predator wants to hurt one of my kids, he's going to have to hurt me first. And he better make his one shot count because once I realize that a threat exists, I'm coming. Relatedly, the thought of someone actually succeeding in hurting one of my children turns my stomach. Have you ever thought about that? I desire that justice be done against any evildoer, but that desire is multiplied a hundredfold in the direction of any degenerate who purposely hurts one of my children. How much I would want justice. If we're honest with ourselves, we all feel that way, don't we? And many well-meaning people would tell you that such feelings aren't godly. Well, such people need to consider our text for this morning. This jealous, protective response is rooted in the image, character, and nature of God. However, I think we'll see that how that knowing that fact will do far more than excuse our aggressive instincts for the protection of our children... It should also transform how we treat and feel about His children. That's going to be our topic for this morning in Matthew 15, 5-10. And whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a, mill, a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better to enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into eternal fire. 
If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you because it's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We're going to consider this morning our treatment of believers, uh, God's judgment of stumbling blocks, and our temperament toward believers. Beginning with our treatment of believers in verse 5, whoever receives one such little one in my name receives me. First, notice that the point is our treatment of believers, it's not our treatment of children. This has nothing to do with child abuse or being mean to little kids. Of course, we shouldn't do that, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Yes, Jesus took an actual little child in his lap, but he was using that child as an illustration Remember last week, verses 3, 18, 3, unless you are converted and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples had been arguing over who was the greatest in the kingdom, but in order to even be in the kingdom, they had to be converted and become low of rank like a child. They had to lessen their estimation of themselves. They had to take the lower seat. Stop being so haughty and think you have everything so figured out. You don't. You need grace. And you need sanctification. Every child of the kingdom, has that's happened to them. They've been converted and they became like one such little child. Now Jesus is moving from how the disciples are supposed to view themselves to how they are to treat other such children. You're not the only child of God. We think the world revolves around us, but we are one of millions and millions and millions of children of God on this planet. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. How are we to treat other such children who know that they don't have it all figured out, but who know that they need Jesus. That's, that's the bottom watermark of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? I need grace. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I need to grow. I'm not what I should be. I'm trusting in Him. Those are the children of God. How are we to treat those people? Verse 6 makes it even more clear that Jesus is referring to those people and not little kids. Verse 6, one of these little ones who believes in me. It's talking about those who believe in Jesus. They too are children of the kingdom. And how we treat them matters and it matters eternally. God is deeply concerned about how His children are treated. Y'all resonated with the feelings that I expressed toward my children. You you think of how you feel that same way. We do not love our children more than God loves His children. All those little ones matter to God the way your little ones matter to you only to a great, greater, much greater extent. We see God's concern for His children all the way back when He established a nation for Himself through Abraham and He said of Abraham's descendants that He would bless those who blessed and He would curse those who cursed them. The Lord has always demanded good treatment of His people, commanding unbelievers to treat them well and commanding them to treat one another well. 
Again, we have another allusion to this newly constituted people of God. That's what Jesus is doing here. Those blessings and cursings that were on Old Testament Israel, now those blessings and cursings are on the church toward believers. In the Old Covenant, that was the physical descendants of Abraham. But who are the children of God? John 1, 11-12. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him. To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. That's believers. Any believer, any Christian. This is referring back to Jesus' response to Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ when He says, Upon this rock I will build My church, this new ecclesia, these new, this new people of God, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Abraham would possess the gates of his enemies. Now the church will possess the gates of their enemies. And that we would be given the keys to the kingdom together, that we're a collective people of God that are going to change the world. And all of those people, all those little ones matter. To God, you are one of many of those little ones. Everything in chapter 18 is building toward how the keys to the kingdom are exercised in the church and how that binding and loosing takes place in 18, verses 15 through 18. But central to this functioning, as it must, is our mutual care for one another as children of God. God places His children in the church to be protected and nurtured, not despised and hindered. So we get a positive and a negative here. God promises to bless those who bless or receive His children, and He gives a dire warning to those who curse them or cause them to stumble. Let's begin with the positive. Whoever receives one such little one in my name receives me. What's it mean to receive such a little one, and how is receiving them the same as receiving Christ? Well, this word receive, it means to welcome to retain, to require a knowledge of, to deliberately and readily take someone to yourself. The term was often used used of welcoming honored guests and meeting their needs with special attention and kindness. No matter how lowly, no matter how unsophisticated, no matter how immature or weak a believer is, he must be received by us as the precious child of God that he truly is. Are you welcoming to your fellow children in the faith? Do you show them hospitality? Do they feel honored by you or do they feel ignored by you? Do you retain them even even in the midst of their undesirable character traits? Like you, I don't know, forgive them like you've also been forgiven or something. Or do you write them off and ignore them? Do you acquire a knowledge of the other little ones in your community of faith? You're in covenant with these people. Do you know them? Do you even know their names? Or do they matter to you so little that you have no idea what's going on in their lives? We have a newsletter that lists prayer concerns and the hurtings of our people. Do you read it? Or do those people not matter enough to you for you to even care what's going on in their lives? Of course, why would I read it? I'm not going to pray for them anyway. Do you consider how you can serve them? Do you even attempt to engage the the unengaged among us, those that might fall through the cracks? When someone disagrees with you, 
concerning an issue of faith or practice? Do you just write them off as, as stupid? Or do you attempt to acquire a knowledge of why they hold their position or why that their conscience is bound or loosed differently than yours might be? If you don't even care what they think, perhaps you think you're of a higher rank than they are and you've not even became like a little child yourself. Maybe that's the problem. What they think is just stupid. You've not even heard them out. You know it's actually possible that you're just stupid? That you're the one that's even wrong? But you'll never learn because you don't think enough of them to even hear them out. You don't receive these little ones. These questions are huge. How huge? Well, receiving them is the same as receiving Christ. Guys, that's, I'm not interpreting this verse. I'm reading it, right? Whoever receives one such little one in my name receives me. We, we've seen similar concept already. Remember in the missionary discourse in Matthew 10, 40 through 42, he who receives you, he says of the disciples he sends on the missionary journey, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones... Here's the same thing, right? If you give to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. I said this matters. Your treatment of the little ones matters eternally. It does. In reward or in punishment, it matters and it matters eternally. He will bless those that bless his people and he will curse those who curse his people. Every child of the kingdom is to be welcomed. And not just welcomed, welcomed in Jesus' name. The lowest ranking child of the kingdom is to be received as if you are receiving Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom Himself. Do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ that way? Do you hold them in that high esteem? I don't all the time. I wrestled with this text and I said, I don't all the time. I'm so self-absorbed. Before you disregard, discount, ignore, cast aside, run from, belittle, mock, or otherwise devalue a little one who believes on Christ, remember the consistent testimony of the Scriptures. It's impossible to separate Christ from His people. It's impossible. You can't separate them. He's the head and they're the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He's the vine, they're the branches. John 15, 5. He's the bridegroom, they're the bride. Revelation 21, 2 and 9. When Saul was persecuting Christians, the Lord confronted him on the Damascus road and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting all these Christians? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? An offense against one of these little ones is an offense against Christ, the King of the Kingdom. God said, I, I don't know about you, but that's, that was heavy when I thought through this. Hit me like a sledgehammer. We must solemnly consider this. The way a person treats Christians is the way he treats Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 25. 31. Right, you can read with me when I get to verse 34, but it talks about when the Son of Man comes in His glory with all of His angels with Him. There's echoes of what we see here, isn't there? 
Their angels behold the face of the Father, right? So when the Son of Man comes in His glory with all the angels with Him, Jesus said, then He'll sit on His glorious throne and He'll place the believers, the sheep on His right and the unbelievers, the goats on His left. And listen what it says. Matthew 25, 34-40. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And then He tells why that they're going to inherit it. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It's the same idea, isn't it? If you didn't receive me, them, you might as well say you didn't receive me because they're mine. I'm, I'm one with them. They're my brothers. And when you didn't receive them, I took it personally. When anyone welcomes a Christian as an honored guest, a friend, he receives Christ as his guest or friend. He, treats any, he who treats any Christian with tenderness and kindness treats Christ with tenderness and kindness. Are you going out of your way to show kindness to your fellow Christians in church? We've considered the positive, but now let us consider the negative. The positive is received, the negative is offend in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe on me to stumble. The little translation here, literal, is cause to stumble. But it's really less helpful than the word offend. The word is scandalon. It's a stumbling block. It means to give an offense, to shock, excite feelings of disgust, uh, of hatred, of dislike or contempt. And it can mean to cause to fall away. I think many people read this verse and they immediately go to the cause to fall away from the faith. That if anyone causes one of these little ones to apostatize, I think that's how they think of it. The problem is that's not how Jesus just used the word. Nor is it how the rest of the New Testament uses the word within the context of the church. And that's where this is written, isn't it? How did Jesus just use the word in 1725? Well, Jesus told Peter that they really didn't owe the two drachma temple tax. Remember that? We really don't owe this. Everyone in the entire pietistic Jewish community thought that paying that tax was the righteous thing to do. But Jesus knew the cited scriptures were misused and that their standing as the true children of the kingdom made them exempt. We talk about tax-exempt status. We have it. However, he said in verse 27, so as not to offend them. Scandalizo. That's how he's using it. So that we don't offend them. Just go ahead and pay it. The word is being used to indicate intentionally offending someone. The idea is that you disregard the feelings and opinions of the other person so much that you intentionally do something that you know that they won't like just to rub it in their face. That's this word. That's scandalize them. You, you disregard them, so, you so much don't receive them, you don't want to be one with them, that you will push them out and be an intentional offense to them. 
Jesus didn't want to do that to these Pharisees who thought that the temple tax was owed. He didn't want to scandalize them, intentionally offend them, rub it in their face. He had the opportunity, chose not to, because it's not nice. Did nothing for them. He refused to do it. Guys, we know we've passed from death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. And he that does not love his brother abides in death. Why would you want to hurt one of these little ones if you love them? Why would you want to offend them, shock them, excite in them feelings of hatred, of dislike, of contempt toward you? Why would you want that? That's actually how the word's used in the New Testament as well, in the context of the church. Surprise, surprise. Many believers in the early church came out of strict Judaism in which the eating of pork in any form was forbidden. After becoming Christians, it was difficult to break with these old covenant regulations. The tradition that they had held to their entire life was wrong. But they still believed it deeply, didn't they? Many believers criticized weaker Jews because they still refused to eat pork. And they emphasized the truth that in Christ they were freed from these ceremonial restrictions. And they'd intentionally and flagrantly flagrantly eat right in front of them just to flaunt their liberty. What did Paul say about that? Romans 14, 13-19. Let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block, same word, in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks it is unclean, to him it is unclean. But if because of food your your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. Don't just rub it in their face and cause disgust and make them resent you. Don't do that. Verse 19, So we are to pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food or anything else. It's not limited to food. Just don't scandalize them. And then now, with that idea, think of our immediate context. He's talking to these disciples. The disciples had just engaged in a heated argument over who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Everything in Matthew equates greatness in the kingdom with keeping and teaching the law of God rightly. We we laid that out. I'm not going to cover it again this week. But they were arguing, Hey, I get the law better than you. I'm greater than you. I'll be the one that should bind and loose. I'm, I'm going to lead us into how the blessing will come. Each one of the disciples made their case for their superior handling of the law, each asserting their own righteousness over the other. No doubt there were negative comparisons, pointing out the perceived weaknesses and failures of the other disciples in a condemnatory, attacking way. I'd say that there were some red faces involved, wouldn't you? Some raised blood pressure. Jesus first attacked their pride by telling them that unless they took the rank of a little child, they wouldn't enter the kingdom of heaven, more or less ever achieve the status of greatest within the kingdom. But now he hits them for their boasting and their attacking of other little children of God. They weren't receiving them. They were intentionally trying to attack and gold and prod and hit them and tell them, hey, you're not as good as you think you are. Knocking them down. Instead of speaking verbal blessings, they were speaking verbal curses which incited envy, jealousy, and anger. It stirred up feelings of the flesh. 
Are you dealing with your brothers and sisters in a way where you're intentionally trying to stir up feelings of the flesh? Things that you know will just get them going and make them upset and maybe lead them into sin, whether they manifest it externally or just feel it internally. Are you being that kind of stumbling block? Galatians 5, you were called, 13, to freedom, brethren. But do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you not be consumed by one another. Verse 26 of that same chapter, let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Now Jesus tells us how serious this is. What is God's judgment of stumbling blocks? These verses contain some of the most severe teaching on spiritual punishment in the Gospels. Let's consider the severity of that judgment and the ends to which we should go to avoid it. Beginning with the severity, verses 6 through 9. It'd be better for him... This person that's causing the offense, causing the stumbling block, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man from whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better to enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands and two feet be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. We see here the preferableness of a millstone drowning and two woes. Think about that. The preferableness of a millstone drowning. How seriously does the father take an offense against one of his beloved children? If you came at wanting to... Think about this. Put yourself in the shoes. Somebody comes at your children trying to attack them in order to make them feel bad about themselves or to just get them going or just to make them mad and just insult them. How do you feel towards someone that does your children that way? Guys, I'd be ready to fight. You're doing that to God's children. Turn it around. If a good thorough drowning is preferable to the judgment coming on those who cause a believer to stumble, then that judgment must be terrible. This heavy millstone refers to a large upper millstone that was turned in a grinding process by a donkey. People couldn't, you couldn't turn that thing. Donkeys hauled it. These millstones were huge. They typically weighed hundreds of pounds. That would have made quite the necklace, wouldn't it? Just wearing one around your neck would have been torturous. But it's not just wearing one that would be better than the judgment coming on those who intentionally offend one of these little ones. The Greek is vivid. That they be plunged down into the sea, into the sea of the sea. It's an odd wording, isn't it? That they be plunged down, like, hey, not just thrown into the sea, but like into the sea of it. Like go out to the farthest part of the sea, past where the, the continental shelf is, as far down as you can imagine it going and have that hundreds of pounds necklace on your neck and then be thrown into the sea from there. This language was meant to show with absolute certainty that the culprit would drown. There's no escape. 
The Romans sometimes practiced this form of execution. This, the person would be taken far away from shore and plunged into a watery grave from which return was absolutely impossible. Such a pagan form of execution was unimaginably horrible to the Jews. They'd be like, Who, why, that's, that's a godless way to kill people. It's beneath their dignity. He's saying it'd be preferable to die this pagan way that the Romans do it. This terrible way. This unnecessary way. Then it is for you to continue as one who causes offense to your brothers. Jesus said that, the suffer, that suffering such a terrifying death would be better than intentionally offending even one of His people. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. You're like, hey, I'm generally nice to everybody. One! One! Who's your one? Stop it! Repent of your one! You don't get a quota. The quota is zero. We have two woes here. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man from whom the stumbling block comes. Woe was a word of cursing and condemnation. And the woes which follow in verse 7 emphasize the seriousness of the sin. You first have a woe to the world. Woe to the world? That's heavy, guys. The church's unity and love for one another brings blessing to the whole world. But a church's disunity and lack of love toward one another brings curses on the whole world. We're the hope of the world. Woe to the world when you're not loving each other as a church like you should. Why is a church so powerless? Because it's so loveless. That's why. A new commandment, Jesus said, I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. People don't believe our message because they don't like our life. It's a lot of it. They don't love. They're not, they're, they're not fulfilling the law. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Oh, how we express our deep abiding love for the church. You know, the faceless church, right? Oh, I love the church. But once you put a face, the face of that little one, the one that we don't want to receive, that one. Once you put a face, I love the church, the faceless one. But put that face of that little one that you don't want to receive... The one that you don't want to retain. The one that you don't care to know. Once you put the face of that little one who you enjoy mocking, belittling, and offending, then that love is truly tested, isn't it? You love the church? What about that one? The one with the face? What about that one? The one you think has a punchable face? Maybe. What about that one? By this, the world will know you are my disciples. By your toleration of one another? No, no. Not that you tolerate, that you love them. By your ambivalence toward one another? Absolutely not. By your love. And love is a verb that welcomes, retains, acknowledges, acquires a knowledge of. But this cursed woe is not just a hindrance to the spread of the shalom of the kingdom of God in the world. There's another dreadful woe. Last week we saw that unless a man viewed himself as a little child with everything to learn, that he wouldn't even enter the kingdom of heaven. 
But this warning concerning our treatment of such little ones is heavier still. Woe to that man from whom stumbling blocks come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better that you enter into life crippled and lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye offends you and it causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Last week it was you want to enter the kingdom so you wouldn't. It, so it was what you wouldn't get as a reward. This week it is what you will get as judgment. And look at the two things it says. If you're the one that causes stumbling blocks, what do you get? Eternal fire and fiery hell. It's saying that if you can continue in this sin, if you can unrepentantly stay in your lovelessness, that you're on your way to hell. God will sanctify that out of you. We know we've passed from death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. You don't you say, well, you know, I think you're overstating it, Matt. No, I'm not overstating it. If you don't love your brother, if you can continue being intentionally an offense to people and being loveless toward them, not receiving them and, and, and wanting to attack and cut and bite them and devour them, if you can continue in that, you're you would ultimately show that you're not even a Christian. I'm not overstating it. I believe better things concerning you, but I'm not overstating it. This is the 1689 London Baptist Confession that we hold as a church that we believe about the reality of hell. There's a place for hell preaching, isn't there? The souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved for the judgment of that great day. But that's not the end. There's a bodily resurrection of the unjust where the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Well, of course it's better to be drowned in the depths of the sea because that's over quick. Eternal torment is an over quick. And that's Jesus' point here. You're on the way to worse than anything the Romans can do to you. Treason against Rome is nothing compared to treason against God for attacking the king of the kingdom. You said, not, not the king of the kingdom, one of, his, one of the little ones. An attack on one of the little ones is an attack against the king. We've already established that. This is also from the London Baptist Confession. As Christ would have us to be certain, certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have the day unknown to men that they may shake off carnal security and always be watchful. Guys, I'm calling you to always be watchful because there's a judgment day coming and we know not when. Are you guilty? That's the reason I'm preaching this and saying, hey, it's not hopeless. Repent. Repent. It's that simple. To what end should we go in that repentance? What's the avoidance of that judgment? Verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. What's the takeaway here? Amputation is preferable to damnation. 
<laughs> well, that's catchy, but unfortunately, avoiding judgment isn't really that easy. None of this is to be taken literally here. Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. How do we know? Well, here's how we know. If you're maimed in this age, do you enter the age to come crippled or lame? No, right? When we enter there, we'll be healed of all that. If we lose an eye in this age, will, we, will that eye still be gone in the resurrection? Of course not. So Jesus is not talking about... He's not making a statement about our eternal state right there. It's not what He's doing. He's showing you the, how serious this is, the extent that you should go to get rid of this if you see it in your heart, if you're guilty of this. What He just saw that the disciples were guilty of in their heated exchange with their fellow brothers and sisters. Or fellow brothers. The eye represents how you see things and what you desire. The eye is the lamp of the body. This is Jesus' words in chapter 6, 22. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Let me ask you this. How do you view yourself? How do you view your other brothers and sisters? Do you view yourself as more important? If so, then you'll try to attack them. You don't care what happens to them. You'll belittle them. You won't esteem them as highly as you do yourself. You'll cut and you'll bite and you'll devour. So it's related to your eye. What you do has to do with how you view things. You see things the way you see them and therefore you do what you do. When your actions are bad, your desires are bad. And you should take both very seriously. The point was that a person should do whatever is necessary, no matter how extreme and painful that it might be. If you know you fail to love your brother by not receiving him or by intentionally offending him, you must see that as a problem of eternal significance and recognize how helpless you are to fix that on your own. Unless you be converted. And become like little children. God, you've got, I, I can't fix this. It, it goes back to being converted and becoming like a little child, having a right estimation of yourself, and that will change how you estimate your brothers and sisters, won't it? If you're higher than them, you'll be mean to them. If you're the same or if you put yourself lower, then you'll cherish them and you'll celebrate them. But that takes a miracle that God has to do in your heart, and it manifests itself in actions. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 is what we all need. Sprinkle clean water on me and I will be clean. I'll cleanse you from your filthiness and your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. It starts with the heart. It starts with the eye and then it works itself out in the actions. You're caused to walk in the statues because you're changed in your perspective. And the heart issue is exactly where Jesus goes next. We must understand the origin of the treatment that we're displaying toward fellow little ones. And our treatment of believers is rooted in our temperament toward believers. Look, there's feelings to avoid. Not just actions to avoid, there's feelings to avoid. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart, isn't it? The feelings to avoid. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. It's verse 10. This word for despise, that you don't think little of one of these little ones. See to it that you don't look down on one of these little ones. That you don't 
think lightly of one of these little ones. That one doesn't matter. That you don't disregard one of these little ones. That's the range of meaning of this word. If you feel, if that fits your feelings towards someone, see to it with the earnestness of lopping off hands to urgency or plucking out eye urgency. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, that you don't feel that way. To despise is the opposite of to receive. Remember, receives was welcomes, retains, acquires a knowledge of. Jesus commands you to see to it that you despise none. Is there one who instead of welcoming you disregard? One who instead of retaining you exclude? One who instead of acquiring a knowledge of you think lightly of them? One that you look down upon as if their opinion and their perspective is of no value? How many do you get to do that with? Zero. You don't get to do it with any of them. None. When you think little of, look down on, think lightly of, or disregard someone, you'll inevitably not be there for them in their time of need. In fact, you probably won't even be aware that they are in need because you think so little of them that you don't know what's going on with them because they don't matter to you. It's not that you dislike them. It might just be that you nothing them. This is dangerous. We looked at those on the right who were welcomed into the kingdom. As you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. But look at the flip side. Back to Matthew 25, 41 through 46. This is what he says to those on the left. Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire. Sound familiar? Which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not take care of you? And then he, he, he'll answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I felt this sin creeping into my heart before. I bet y'all have too. You might have someone in mind. Creeps in. You start having negative feelings. You start despising someone. Remember what that means. You start thinking little of someone, looking down on them, think lightly of them, disregard them. It's that, you know, look at that jerk over there in the corner eating crackers kind of feeling. It don't matter what they're doing. They're just over there eating crackers. Somebody knows where that came from. You, it doesn't matter what they're doing. It just irks you. Everything they do starts irking you. That's when this has crept in. They open their mouth and immediately you're annoyed. You're not trying to see if there's any benefit to what they're saying. You're immediately trying to point out what's wrong with whatever they're saying. See to it that you put these feelings down quickly. You're doing that to Christ. You're despising God's child. What if someone started treating your kid that way every time they open their mouth? You're doing that to God's child. The disdain you wear all over your face. You're doing that to God's child. You, you see it when it's on other people towards your kids and you feel it and you get angry. God sees it on your face. 
You're not hiding it. He don't have to see it on your face. He sees your heart. He knows you despise one of these little ones. Put it down. It's easy for us to despise those who sin differently than we do, isn't it? Euodia and Sintuke in the book of Philippians, man, they didn't like one another. They, they, Euodia emphasized one thing, Sintuke another. They disagreed what priorities should be and how they should serve. And Paul says, I urge you, Euodia, and I urge you, Sintuke, to live in harmony in the Lord. You're both in the Lord. Live at harmony. I know you're different, but live at harmony. Indeed, Suzugos, guys was an elder in that church, true companion, help these women who have shared in my struggle and the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Both of them are Christians. They're not getting along right now, but it matters that they do. We've got to pursue unity corporately. And one of the keys he gives in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true. When you think of that other person, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise in that other person, Euodia, if you see anything in Sintuke, Sintuke, if there's anything in Euodia, dwell on those things. The bad's going to be there. And you all just don't click. Some people just don't click. They're, they're both believers, but they see things so differently. They're wired so differently, they just don't click. When you think about the other one, don't think about where you don't click. Dwell on what's good. Pray for them. See to it that you don't despise them. It says in Romans 14, 1-4, Paul said, Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he might eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. I don't like vegetarians, but... <laughs> the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Notice this, regard with contempt, don't despise one of these little ones, same kind of idea, isn't it? They're different than you. They feel bound in areas you don't. You think they live weird. You think they're not living in the freedoms that they should live or you think they're binding where they shouldn't bind or you think they're living too liberally. No, no, no. Don't regard with contempt the one who doesn't eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who does eat for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another man's servant to his own master? He stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Your job's loving or love her. That's your job. In order to bind and loose rightly in the kingdom, we must receive all the little ones, even those with whom we don't click. And that's where this is headed. The church combined decides when someone is in sin. You don't get to do that by yourself. You think they're in sin, you can go talk to them. Then you can widen the circle. You all can think, well, I actually live this way because of this. I think this. So this is how I read the Scriptures. Well, I think this. And you can say, well, I think, I think you're right or I think you're wrong or vice versa. You, you, can, you can debate it. And if it gets to the point where you think it's serious enough that it needs to be brought before the whole church, the church can say, no, you're right and you're wrong or you're right and you're wrong. Or I see where you're both coming from. Just trust in the Lord. We don't have enough data here to bind or to lose consciences. It's where it's headed in Matthew 18. That's, that's the kind of culture that will be formed through the church. But turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 18-22. We're almost, we're almost done. This is just kind of a precursor of how it fits in a larger context.
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. It's inevitable that you're going to disagree with other believers, isn't it? I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must be factions or divisions among you so that those who are approved might become evident among you, that you actually work through these things and find out what's right and what's wrong as you study the Scriptures together. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So they were just dividing into their little factions of people they agreed with and eating with the people that all agreed with them, and if somebody else didn't have anything, that they just, hey, you're out. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise? Same word here. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? You're not allowed to despise those who have nothing. You've got to involve them, bring them in, even those that you have the divisions with. Share with them, receive them, extend hospitality to them, and work through what do the Scriptures say, and then everybody agree together that those that are approved among you might be evident among you. That the one who has the right opinion where there is these divisions, that you can go to that position or agree to disagree and love one another anyway if the church so says so. Reasons for avoiding these feelings is where this text ends up. It's pretty interesting. In 10, uh, verse 10b, second part of it, so reading it all together one more time. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Why? For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Guys, we don't talk about angels enough, but it's a biblical thing. In our scientific age, we almost act like angels don't exist. They do. Now, they're not fluttery little girls with halos and wings that flutter around and play harps. and That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about angelic warriors that if you saw one, you'd wet yourself. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about warriors that do battle against demonic hordes of evil. We're, we're, we, that, when we think angels, we, we're thinking of fluffy clouds. No, no, no. We're think, that, that's wrong. That's not the biblical idea. So what's going on here? Every little one matters to God. Those who might easily be despised on earth are represented in heaven by these angels that I just explained to you. These mighty warriors who are important enough to have a privileged access to God. These angels are before the face of God Himself. To, to look at the face of God reflects courtly language for personal access to the King. We see that in the Old Testament several times. So these angelic warriors who actually get to be before God in heaven, they're angels in heaven. These little ones, the, the angels who are designated to these little ones. There are hints of the idea of individual guardian angels in the Bible. Genesis... 48.16 Hebrews 1.14 says Are they, speaking of angels, not ministering spirits sent to render out service for the sake of those who will inherit eternal salvation? That angels actually aid us. Did you know that? This text is where we get the idea of individual guardian angels assigned to each person. 
In this text alone, it neither proves nor disproves that idea. But at the very least, these mighty angelic warriors represent the whole class of little ones. It might not be each one has its own guardian angel, but the, the angels as guardians watch over the little ones of God at the very least. I'm open to the idea that every single believer has one entrusted to them. I don't know, can't prove it or disprove it. don't know. Kuiper points out, Abraham Kuiper, guys, he's just an intellectual guy, not the guy you would think would emphasize angelology. Okay. The care and watchfulness bestowed on God's children by the angels is not of merely mechanical or arbitrary character. These angels are passionate for the welfare of believers. Luke 15.10 There is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom in 16.22. That the angels are emotionally invested in these little ones. The angels bear the needs of God's children on their heart and are, de- are deeply interested in them and love them. According to the Scriptures, angels are defenders of God's children. Though we outrank them and will judge the angels ultimately in this stage as we're going through this, this time to get to the kingdom of God being fully established, in that intermediary period, they are ministering spirits on our behalf and they're invested in us. Friends of the redeemed, constantly watching over them. That's what angels are. Deeply interested in their salvation. This is Kuiper again. And rendering service to them in every way. Also in executing the judgment of God upon the enemies. I want to ask you this. Do you want to make yourself the enemy of these angels? You don't want none. And that's kind of the point here. They're angels... Behold the face of the Father. In His displeasure, they are ministering spirits and they're entrusted to protection of the little ones. Last place we'll turn is in Matthew 13, 40-43. Where we see this one more time. And it's in Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Where the wheat... The true people, children of the kingdom, are separated from the tares, those that look the part but really aren't. And he says, Just as the tares, Matthew 13, 40, were gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, all the offenders, all the stumbling blocks. He's going to gather them up. They're the tares. They're the poisonous ones. They look the part of the wheat. They look just like the rest of the wheat, but they're actually stumbling blocks. He'll gather up the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and throw them in the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. How's he judging? How's he distinguishing? By your love toward one another. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For their angels in heaven always behold the face of the Father who is in heaven. 
and he will send and he will have judgment on those who harm his children. The same vengeful judgment that you feel toward the protection of your children, God will send the angels to execute that judgment on those who hurt his little ones. Guys, if you're like me, guilty. Sometimes I've not received. Sometimes I've not welcomed. What do we do when we get to that, when we get to that place? We humble ourselves and take the low rake of little children who needed a Savior. And we say Jesus never, Jesus always took that low rank, didn't he? That although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped for his own benefit, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. He became my servant, dying on my behalf, paying my penalty, and I hold to that. And I say, Jesus, you're all I've got. That's the only hope we've got. We're all guilty, aren't we? We've not received and we have despised. We've been stumbling blocks, we've intentionally offended. We've despised, we've held that disdain toward others in our heart, but Jesus never did, and He took the punishment on Himself for us. And we say, Jesus, You're all I've got. I claim Your righteousness, but God, I don't want to continue being this wicked way. Conform me to the image of Your Son. Finish the work that You started in me. Those that You justified also sanctified. I know that if I'm sanctified, one day I'll be glorified, but without sanctification, no man will see God. Pursue these ideals. Pursue them as you cleave to Christ. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this warning text. God, we thank you for the example that you gave us as the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest, that you gave them this sharp rebuke to wake them up, to call them back from their senses, to make them not presume, but to pursue love for their fellow man. Lord, Work that in us. Thank you for that warning. We pray that you'll work it in us, that we cleave to the cross as our only hope. Transform us, Lord, why we don't want woes on the world. We don't want woes on ourselves as the stumbling blocks. So, Lord, change us. Conform us to your image. Make us like you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.